This is Draco Malfoy and the House of Black, part three of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridget. Chapter seven, The Silver Phoenix. Draco kept a close eye on his snake watch while he was at Grimald, calculating how long it should be before Ron and Hermione would expect him at the three broomsticks. It was a foolish project from a rational point of view, no practical purpose, but the idea seemed unspeakably satisfying. That was, if he had the right to use the spell, and if his wand would even obey him and do it once he figured out how. He had to leave before he made any real progress, but he filled two sacks with promising-looking books off the shelves, casting a featherlight charm and transfiguring the bags into large facsimiles of shop bags, before apparating himself to an alley in Hogsmeade close to the three broomsticks. He ended up making it only a few minutes after Ron and Hermione's arrival, when the sight of new books naturally aroused Hermione's curiosity. He gave her only the vaguest answers about where he had bought them and what they were. Maybe he would enlist her in his new project later, but even she wouldn't want him talking about it in front of Ron, so he kept them in the dark and listened to them in suze about the joys of Hogsmeade. Draco was seized with inspiration, one he promptly discarded as soon as it had come, to get Potter to give him his invisibility cloak and stake out the front of Gryffindor Tower to observe Black's attempt to bypass the fat lady. Maybe he could even say to hell with the blue loop and stun the unaware fugitive, turn him over to justice and see him get kissed before anyone was wiser about potential innocence. Severus would be happy. Hermione wouldn't be. He made his first appearance at the Halloween feast in the Red Line and was amused to watch all of the Slytherin tables seem to relax, seeing him take a seat there. Memories of him loosing the Malfoy family troll in the dungeons two years ago had not faded quickly. No need for a public service announcement this year, then, Blaze quipped. Unfortunately, Draco groused, I have no dank and nefarious deeds to accomplish to save me from having to celebrate Sawain with you not. It's a shame you can't go home to the manor for this. Theo said, gazed towards Draco fond for once, in the only thing that seemed to make it fond these days, memory. Your family's having a Samhain masquerade this year, aren't they, with bonfires? Samhain at Malfoy Manor was amazing. I never got invited, Pansy said gloomily, and the thought seemed to ruin her Halloween. Nearly headless Nick managed to spare himself from his death day party long enough to provide a dinner show though Draco could hardly see or taste anything before him. The urge was overwhelming to go back to Slytherin and look at the books from Grimald Place, so much so that he regretted coming at all. Draco cut out of the feast as soon as it was respectably possible, not wanting to get caught up anywhere near the drama that would be ensuing any minute now in front of Gryffindor Tower. It was a welcome relief, the thought of what seemed the inevitable Halloween chaos not involving him for once. He had his books to scour for any references to the spell he needed, except he had not even made it back securely to his dorm, before the word started around that they were all to go to the Great Hall. He'd forgotten. Black's intrusion meant the school on lockdown, not just Gryffindor. Great. 
Of all the useless things he had to relive, there was this sleepover when he had books to read. The teachers and I need to conduct a thorough search of the castle. Dumbledore told them as McGonagall and Flitwick closed all doors into the hall. I'm afraid that for your own safety, you will have to spend the night here. I want the prefects to stand guard over the entrances to the hall, and I am leaving the head boy and girl in charge. Any disturbance should be reported to me immediately. He added to Peter Weasley by his side, who looked like his brother's best friend in peril was his Christmas come early. Send word with one of the ghosts. Oh yes, you'll be needing. Dumbledore's wand just had to wave once to turn the scene that had been a Halloween feast into a slumber party. Tables flying out of the way against the walls. Hundreds of comfortable, non-house-affiliated purple sleeping bags waiting for students on the ground. It was impressive enough in its casualness to remind Draco why he found this man more frightening than Voldemort. He could only stand there awed for so long, though. Eventually he began to wonder how slim the chances were that Severus would let him sneak off and stay in his rooms that night instead. Sleep well said Professor Dumbledore, closing the door behind him. The Gryffindors seemed to enjoy their newfound celebrity, as even Blaze, free of his splint but still favouring his hurt arm, had gone up to Patil and Brown to ask what was going on. Headboy Peter started trying to hustle everyone into their places, eager to deprive anyone of the incidental fun that could come with the occasion. It was a stark change in circumstances, from the freedom of apparating between his family's ancestral homes, unwatched and unnoticed, to becoming yet another schoolchild clumped up like a refugee for his own supposed safety, while Peter Bloody Weasley got to lord it over him. He couldn't stop being thirteen soon enough. Being thirteen, it turned out, delivered the unfortunate situation of not knowing where to put his sleeping bag. Little order seemed to have been obeyed when it came to houses, as people just rushed in small groups of often cross-house friends and relatives to find the most favourable places to put themselves in Peter Weasley's allotted time frame. Draco didn't see any of the other third-year Slytherins, and even if he had, he didn't know how safe he would feel sleeping around them without a bed to charm and lock around himself. It would be the first time he had slept without any real protective spells in many years, and maybe that meant it would be best to try and not sleep. Where are the second-year Ravenclaw girls sleeping? Draco asked some passing girls with Ravenclaw ties, and received perhaps the most judgmental stares he had ever gotten in his disgraceful life. Luna? He called out dismally, looking for the bright flare of white blonde to signal his cousin's presence. But there were too many students, and knowing her, she'd probably secured a sleeping bag in some unseen corner by herself and gone to sleep already. Draco! a voice hissed. Draco! And from its magical amplification, as well as its bossy shrill tone, he knew it to be Hermione's. A grin split his face as he followed the sound, ignoring the stares he got. His usual need to play it cool and hide his attachment to Gryffindors 
paled in the need to find a place to sleep, or at least pretend to, before the wrath of Peter Weasley came crashing down upon him. And maybe, if he was by the three of them, it would be safe to sleep without spells to protect himself. Who would dare touch him if he was lying beside Harry Potter? It was a shame they had all taken their secure positions in the corner already, but Ron and Potter were easy enough to magically unroll in their bags out of the way like great unwanted lava or grapes. I want to sleep by Hermione, he said, rather than admitting he wanted to lodge his bag where all three of their bodies were shields between him and the rest of the hall. Why did you have to keep yelling to him again? Ron groaned. Draco flicked his wand and rolled Ron right back over, wiggling his eyebrows and making a silly face to mollify him. Potter looked sullen to be the only one to have to roll himself back. He ended up closer to Draco's feet, with Hermione by his head and Ron by his side. He sat up anyway, pushing up his glasses with a flash of green eyes behind them that made the thought Draco was about to sleep near him suddenly seem fraught with more than a question of protectedness. It's very lucky he picked tonight, you know, said Hermione, seeming to pick up where they'd left off talking. The one night we weren't in the tower. I reckon he's lost track of time being on the run, said Ron. Didn't realise it was Halloween, otherwise he'd have come bursting in here. Hermione shuddered, but Draco sat up to try and reckon it out. The most obvious answer would be he wanted to get in when no one was there though that didn't accord with his working theory of Black, trying to have a sentimental family reunion with godson Potter. It did set his mind wandering, though, almost regretting Severus's grudge, for having held him and Severus back from his initial thought, trying to find Black and talk to him themselves. What, to lie and wait for Harry, you think? Ron asked, and shuddered. Imagine if it had been me to go in there first. Don't worry, Ron. I'd give Scabbers a good home, Draco deadpanned, with my peacocks. But Ron's laughter was more pointed than he expected. Safer than we Crookshanks. I'd reckon, actually, I bet we're all still safer right now than poor Scabbers alone in the town with that beast. Bloody hell, Draco, are you all right? Potter? Draco hissed. That's my foot. Sorry, Potter muttered, drawing his head up, scarlet-faced from where he had tried to lie down. Um, close quarters, and your feet are as pale as the pillow. Easy mistake. Right, Draco drawled. But aren't I too luminous, Potter? And here I thought I was the opposite of a Dementor. Shut up, Potter hissed. Draco turned his back on him to check on the other two, who were eagerly whispering theories back and forth again. Draco pressed his face against Hermione's shoulder from behind, inserting his face over it, and played with her newest charm from her birthday, an ankh like his mother had, which likely would have gone over better if that hadn't been one of the prime symbols Trelawney had them looking for in teleomancy. Better than an alligator. Don't worry, Striker, Draco said facetiously. My beautiful totems will protect you from the nefarious prisoner of Azkaban, and made her giggle. What are the enchantments on those, anyway? 
one asked. None, Draco said cheerfully. It's their beauty, you see. He pulled his hair out of his clasp, deliberately fluffing it, before pulling off his coat and posing ostentatiously. Beauty is a powerful force against evil, you know. Ow! Ron had begun to pelt him with pillows, and Draco waved his wand to merrily retaliate until Peter's voice sounded above them. The lights are going out now, Peter shouted. I want everyone in their sleeping bags, and no more talking or pillow fighting. All the candles went out with those words, which showed magic itself taking Peter far too seriously. Draco groaned and fell back into his sleeping bag, which had him in a pile with Hermione until he could extricate himself to his own. He felt his feet brush Potter's hair through the sleeping bag as he tried to settle in, and Potter made outraged noises. Draco, what's my glasses? Why are you still wearing your glasses anyway? Quiet, went Peter above them. If they wanted to talk after that, they had to whisper. After years of enchanting his curtains to isolate himself from his yearmates, it was an especially disconcerting experience to have so many people about and yet be expected to sleep. He took a calming draught from his bag and gave Hermione one when asked, though he refused Ron and Potter. Then it was back to trying to negotiate the shared space between his feet and Potter's excessive hair. Draco finally curled up on his side completely scooting up higher to rest his face near Hermione's, and began to whisper to her, asking what theories she might have about why Halloween always seemed to go wrong at Hogwarts. None of the four of them could sleep, even when it seemed most of the rest of the students finally drifted off. Draco kept shaking his snake watch, pressing soothing kisses to the creature that seemed able to sense the collective air of anxiety. Then Potter leaned over, and hissed in parcel tongue at it, until it calmed down and seemed to go to sleep. The four of them pretended to be asleep to listen in on Dumbledore and Peter whispering above them. Much of what they shared was things Draco remembered from the blue loop, and he almost drifted off still eavesdropping on the teachers, until Severus's voice inserted itself and woke him up. Have you any theory as to how he got in, Professor? Severus asked Dumbledore, and Draco could see Potter lifting his head to listen more. Many, Severus, each of them as unlikely as the next, Dumbledore said, and Potter outright started watching, where Peter looked excited to be included, and Severus looked murderously bleak to Draco's trained eyes. You remember the conversation we had, Headmaster, just before uh, the start of term? Severus said in a tone like he was wishing Peter out of existence. I do, Severus, Dumbledore said warningly, and Draco's spine bristled to hear anyone, even the great Albus Dumbledore, take that tone with his godfather. It seems almost impossible that Black could have entered the school without inside help. I did express my concerns when you appointed. Lupin, Draco thought, and wondered if a listening Potter or his friends would finish that sentence in their minds as well. Not that they would ever believe it. 
I do not believe a single person inside this castle would have helped Black enter it, said Dumbledore in a more foreboding tone, before leaving to go speak to the Dementors. Draco heard Hermione make a soft sound of wonder, no doubt at the look of genuine hatred that flashed clear as day over Severus's face as he watched Dumbledore go. She wouldn't know like Draco did, how little of that decades-old resentment was truly for Dumbledore himself, but for the man he harboured and sheltered against all reason. Because Severus was right. How would Black be getting in like this without Lupin's help, and the full moon the perfect excuse for Lupin to be out of sight? Ron's hand on his wrist drew his attention back to the Gryffindors, all four of whom were leaned together now, eyes open. What was all that about? Ron mouthed. If it had just been him and Hermione, Draco might have tested saying the name. Little good it would likely do him, even with her. As it was, he feigned the same ignorance as the rest of them. Whispers and rumours over Black took over the castle in the week to follow, much like talk of the Chamber of Secrets had dominated Hogwarts after last Halloween. They were fated, it seemed, not to have very long of peace here, which Draco at least preferred to boredom, or he would have thought, but for his frustrating sense of impotence surrounding the whole topic, both genuine and self-inflicted. Do you think Lupin helped Sirius Black get into the castle? He asked Severus, the first time they were alone in his chambers after Halloween. Severus just levelled him with a chilling stare, and Draco hastily told how he'd overheard him in Dumbledore, though he assured him he hadn't explained what he understood to the listening Gryffindors. And you're right, sir. It would make more sense if he had inside help, although Lupin was friends with James Potter too. So if he thinks that Black was the one to hand him and Lily Potter over to the Dark Lord... A darkness swept through Severus's cold eyes when Draco said the name Lily that made Draco remember what his mother had told him about those two, though he had hoped to forget it as useless hearsay forever. But even if Black was the one to hand them over, and you know I think he might not have been, even if he was, if he could convince Lupin he wasn't, then maybe... What? Severus interrupted, aspect going more forbidden than ever. Did I tell you... My young and distressingly impressionable godson, about interfering in matters you do not understand. I showed you that memory of mine to dissuade you, not as an invitation at future interference. I am poor served indeed if you have taken it as such. Concentrate on beating Gryffindor. That is what I need from you, godson. The only thing I need. If Draco really thought Black was trying to kill Potter, he might not have let it go. But as it was, he did have a formidable Quidditch match looming, if formidable in a different way than everyone might suspect. He'd already gone to Hagrid and Severus earlier and gotten nowhere, trying to warn them about the threat of Dementors interrupting the match, 
and he considered trying McGonagall now, but this close to the actual event. It was getting to the point where he would be incurring suspicion by predicting it, without much prospect of changing it. His plan ended up being just to catch the snit before Potter could contrive to fall. Potter already had it hard enough at Quidditch, with the constant tailing he was receiving for his own protection, most irritatingly, by Peter Weasley. Even Quidditch Madge McGonagall set Madame Hooch as a watch on their practices at night, and Potter told him she had considered cancelling the night practices entirely. Draco's only response was bemusement that Potter was being so friendly just days before their match. Last year, Potter had been as cold as the grave to him, but, in retrospect, that might have been due to Potter thinking him the heir. Why shouldn't I be? Potter asked, before getting a very un-Potter-like look and saying, It's not like I'm going to catch a snitch anyway. Draco resisted the surreal urge to pretend to be a Dementor at him. Suddenly he was beginning to understand his former self far better. Saturday morning dawned as stormy and ugly outside as he remembered. He didn't have a hurt arm to try and weasel his team out of it, much as adhering to the old timeline might have given an excuse in his own head. At least he had Potter's clasp for his hair, which was coming in handier than Potter would probably have liked now. Hermione came up to him before the match out of place in a sea of wet green uniforms, and he assured her he had no intention of using any charms stronger than impervious against the weather. Hermione said she had already cast one on Potter's glasses, and so they were even, which suited him. Things had been slightly strained between him and the Gryffindors after Severus substituting for Lupin in defence over the full moon, and the very unsubtle lesson in werewolves he had delivered along with the detention he had given Ron. Personally, from the account of Ron questioning Severus's authority, Draco thought he had well deserved his fate of scrubbing bedpans without magic, but best not to share those thoughts, or use any dodgy charms to undermine these noble do-gooders Quidditch enterprise. Malfoy, get your girlfriend away, she's a spy in a mud! Draco could almost hear the word mudblood come off Flint's lips before he thought better of it, and then lost his nerve even to say muggle-born. A Gryffindor! He finished lamely. Draco just turned back to Hermione, as if his captain hadn't spoken, while thunder rumbled above them like some god had been angered by Hermione's presence. Oh, he's wrong, though, isn't he, Stryker? Your loyalties must be so conflicted, Draco drawled. Agony for you, trying to choose between your house with your lesser friends and where your heart truly calls. Me, Draco Malfoy, your bestest of friends, your beloved Frankenstein. Of course I'm supporting Gryffindor, Hermione said crisply wrapping her green and gold scarf tightly around her neck against the wind. But I do hope no one gets hurt, even Slytherins. Good luck, Draco. She gave him a kiss on the cheek and walked off to her house's stands. Don't worry, Draco called ostentatiously after her. I won't tell anyone you're really rooting for Slytherin. She turned and gave him a severe sort of non-smile that warmed his heart, 
all too briefly, before the wind hit too hard to feel warm at all. Everyone in the school was there despite the weather, and despite Draco's ragged threats at the start of the semester. The old Malfoy Invincible banner had made its appearances amongst his yearmates. He thought it rather ironic, given how, in its first appearance, he had not only lost the match but every bone in his entire body. But maybe Millie and Pansy hadn't felt like making another banner. Malfoy semi-competent? More striking than fellow Slytherins, though, was the companion they seemed to have allowed begrudgingly into their midst. She stood out, not for the Ravenclaw colours she might have worn, but for her headpiece. It was a great, massive green rattlesnake bearing its poisonous jaws, with the cute little excited face of Draco's cousin peeking between them. "'Luna!' Draco called, running over in defiance of the sheets of rain between them. "'Luna, your hat! Merlin, Luna, your hat!' "'I don't know if it'll stand up against the weather.' Luna called, but I had to show my support to my favourite cousin. Draco felt an ear-splitting grin take over his face. Here, come closer, impervious, he cast, and the rain seemed to land on it a little less brutally. She reached down and squeezed his wet hand from the bottom of the stands, before his other hand was seized by a very drowned-looking pansy. Good luck, Draco, pansy said eyes looking even mistier than the rain merited. I know how bad you want to be, Potter, and I know you'll do it this time. Malfoy invincible! You know, Malfoy, Flint groused from behind him. For someone who likes to bellow to the whole school, he's queer. You're awfully girl crazy. If you're done greeting your many girlfriends, think you could condescend to join our huddle? Flint's speech that followed was semi-coherent at best mainly considering of a lot of grunts and various different guttural renditions of Slytherin, Slytherin, Slytherin. But Draco found anything a relief. To take his attention away from the impending prospect of facing two of the three worst things in the world along with Aunt Bella, Dementors and Potter. Compared to those menaces, the weather was a pleasant distraction, and then Draco was seized by inspiration. Here, Draco called, I have a chant for us to do. Wait, come back, everyone. It took some explaining, but it was well worth it to see the faces Gryffindor made. Potter, most of all, when the Slytherins and Gryffindors approached one another and Draco called out, What do we think when we think of Gryffindor? Shit! All the Slytherins shouted excitedly. And what do we think of when we think of shit? Gryffindor! Now, now, everyone, let's keep things sporting, shall we? Madam Hooch said disapprovingly and directed Flint and Wood to shake hands. It looked rather more like two orangutans trying to wrench each other's appendages off by the wrists. Mount your brooms, said Hooch and it was an effort just to find a secure seat on his Nimbus 2001. So considerable a river seemed to be running over every solid surface, charms or not. Last year's storm had been child's play compared to this one, to the point that Draco worried that the impending presence of Dementors was having some effect already. But he managed to get on. Hooch's whistle sounded, and then they were off. Draco didn't know how Potter had managed it all those years. 
trying to play Quidditch with something else on his mind, whether a rogue bludger or an enchanted bucking broom. It was hell trying to focus on catching the snitch with such a narrowed timetable, knowing the Dementors were coming, to not even speak of the weather which had everyone's brooms swerving, especially the lighter players. That proved an unexpected advantage for Slytherin, far heavier with their all-boy team, who didn't seem to be immediately getting walloped below him and Potter, as grievously as Draco remembered from third year in the spring. Or maybe it was just that no one on either team really knew what they were doing. It was hard to tell, one way or another. Draco had to deviate from what his instincts told him, to stick close to Potter's side, to be sure Potter couldn't get far ahead of him, spotting it without him. He swept wide circles around the perimeter of the pitch, eyes trying futilely to search for a spark of gold when it was all he could do to keep his eyes open against the slap of the wind. Merlin. He had really been overselling his own abilities, hadn't he? Oh, it's all right. No need to worry about the Dementors. I'll just catch the snitch too quickly for them. No big deal. I'm from the future, don't you know? When lightning began, Hooch called them down for a time-out. They were only ten points down, forty to thirty, but they had been up in the air longer than Draco realised with night approaching fast. You have to catch the snitch, Flint kept saying, actually shaking Draco at one point, as if that would make it more likely. And then they played on. Upon the restart, Draco had to grudgingly acknowledge that Potter's sense for the snitch was sharper than his, so tracking Potter might be the best strategy to find it. He had to get close for that blurred dark red shape to notice him, but when he did, Potter appeared before him with photographic clarity, the strike of a bolt of lightning just behind him his hair swept back by rain, in that lightning whose thunder seemed to rumble from beneath them. They were so high in the wind and gale now, the thunder was below that would roll everyone playing beneath them away like a hurricane, and leave only the two of them, locked in the struggle that Potter would always win, if something darker even than Draco didn't send him falling. Going to follow me even in this rain? Potter yelled only for a bludger to come hurling up where their face-off had made them drift lower into range of play. That was the speed and force of the wind. Draco laughed his head off, making sure Potter could hear him. When Potter just barely dodged, pale wet face even wetter and paler as he swung back up beside Draco, his snarl was strong enough that it was clear whoever had hit the bludger, he blamed Draco for it. You must be loving this chaos. You're right in your element. Draco spat out rain and tried to smirk over at the potter blur, even as his broom wobbled and bumped in the air beneath him, cold permeating all through. It's true, potter. I've got chaos in my blood. You don't stand a chance. Run your mouth when you catch the snitch, potter retorted. And oh right, that was what they were up here to do. It had almost slipped Draco's mind. So much for ending the match early to prevent the possibility of Dementors. In his defence, though, what could be more distracting than Harry Potter? Draco squinted, rubbing his stinging eyes to try and make out anything golden. But it was hard not to stare only at the shape of rain-soaked Potter, flanked once again by his halo of lightning, 
like he was the one who the storm was coming from, all the power of the tempest crashing out from that slight form in red, so rain-darkened, its shadowed hue was almost indistinguishable from the wet green of the Slytherins. Draco's gaze only left Potter, when Potter seemed to spot something, but it was a faint, an unusually subtle faint by Potter's standards, that jerk of his head to look like he'd seen gold when there was nothing but black. The black of a massive, motionless black dog, as huge as the one Draco had seen on the streets outside Grimold Place, like the grim from the sheets for Trelawney's tassiography readings, alone at the top of the stands, with the lightning fading more slowly where it hung around the aura of the dog, the halo seeming instead to turn dark. And then there was movement in Draco's peripheral vision. As Potter's gaze went from the dog to the air between them, where there was gold at last, and Draco had always been a step behind and missed it, Potter began a kamikaze dive towards Draco, zooming in already closer when Draco should have been based on where they started. Draco flattened himself to his broom, squinting his eyes against the rain trying to ignore the threat of Potter and narrow his entire world to the gold. Potter had said he would catch the snitch no matter what, but Draco had to try. The whole world seemed to go quiet and cold in the moment the green leather of Draco's glove hit the snitch's wings. He would have thought the Slytherins would be cheering as the snitch had stayed somehow in his hands instead of slipping away. But when he tried to cry out in victory, his own voice came out silent. The cold was worse than it should have been, even in the storm. Potter! Draco called, snitch still firmly in hand as he resumed the dive, this time down towards the action of the match to try and understand what had happened, while his spine was crawling with the need to fly higher instead. Away, his bones were telling him, up to the moon, if necessary, to get away from what lay below. Potter, where did you go? Had the others even realised Draco had caught the snitch and won the match? Not that he was sure enough about the score to know he'd won, but judging by the time out, he almost certainly had. Why then? Why wasn't there any cheering or sound at all? There was only this silence like a hole had opened up in the ground below the Quidditch pitch and swallowed up the entire school besides him into its gaping black moor. Just him and that black dog at the top of the stands left. The wind was no longer as strong, like the world was slowly being folded away from behind him, and Draco heard a voice, clear as the second the words had been spoken, inside his head. Lord Voldemort is not sure that he will forgive this time. You called me back for this, to tell me that Harry Potter has escaped again. Draco, give Rowl another taste of our displeasure. Do it, or feel my wrath yourself. Crucio, Draco mouthed just as he had shouted the word before, and the fans waiting to cheer his victory were dementors on the ground, the first time in his life he had ever beaten Harry Potter. Expecto Patronum!
and just as it had appeared in the Chamber of Secrets, there was a phoenix sweeping in, only this forks was made of silver light, the substance of thought escaping into a pensive of Lupin's wolf, the luminance Potter had spoken of as he touched Draco's hair, the opposite of a Dementor. Except perhaps that was Dumbledore himself, come down from the stands to stalk across the glass in the dying rain and dark, wand blazing out a searing flash of light that had the Dementals raising their arms against its brilliance, the phoenix flying at them silently but with a violent, righteous cry Draco could almost hear in his mind from when Fawkes had blinded the basilisk. It was one of the most beautiful things Draco had ever seen, watching where he could not before, the ethereal but deadly swoop of the phoenix's wings driving back the mass of darkness below. The Dementors fled into the air, making Draco cling to his broom harder, thinking with his first rush of mortification how he had not even thought to draw his own wand. But he would have been little use, as all his attempts that summer had taught him. This was what he wanted to do. He knew that now, as the silver phoenix flew its crescent circle all around the faces of the Dementors and set them fleeing en masse, no matter their numbers, the whole stadium one suspended mass of light, more brilliant than if every student had taken out their wand and cast it. Such was the light that the phoenix brought as it descended on its enemies. The light faded, to the sight of Dementals dissipating away in the clear night air, disentangling from where they had been crouched together ready to feast. The unmoving form of Harry Potter, in robes too darkened by water and mud to tell they were meant to be red. Potter! Draco screamed and landed on the ground, throwing his broom aside. He came face to face then with Dumbledore, the light still returning to his wand as the phoenix Patronus disappeared in a curl of smoke. Draco stared at Dumbledore frozen, before Dumbledore walked past him to bend over Potter, and then Potter's teammates and Draco's own landed to cluster around their respective seekers. Malfoy! Malfoy! Flint was calling, and then had grabbed the snitch from Draco's unmoving hand. Look, Madam's hooch! Malfoy caught the snitch, it's over, we won! The fight that erupted then between Flint and Wood was a thing to behold, requiring no fewer than four different professors to separate the two of them once they had gotten started. Flint screaming about Wood being a sore loser, and Wood screaming about how eager Flint was to claim victory over Harry Potter's dead body. Potter wasn't dead, but she wouldn't have known it from the chaos that erupted on that patch of grass, in the midst of wailing and lamentations of those who genuinely seemed to believe Potter was fallen for good. Oh, Draco thought dully, so the blue loop has been followed as best it could. I'm just Diggory, catching the snitch because Potter fell. Except, he'd heard about Diggory nobly offering to have the match replayed. There was no chance of Draco doing that. Even if he would have so much as considered it, he would never have been able to set foot in Slytherin House after, for the rest of his days at Hogwarts. He wasn't a Hufflepuff. Slytherins didn't have replays after they had already won. The next person who spoke to Draco was Hermione, coming over and casting a warming charm on him, 
that for a mad second he thought might be something far more aggressive, in the wake of him profiting off her best friend's fall. Draco, are you all right? She was saying over and over, and pulling him out of the way of the brawl that was only finishing now, having come to involve even more players, and a few students too, from the look of it. I'm fine, Draco said, finding he was not crying, nor struggling to breathe, only numb. He still searched his pockets for a draught of peace. What is Potter? What is he? You think he fell because of the Dementors, Hermione said. You know how sensitive he is to them. He passed out, even before he hit the ground. Dumbledore did something to make him fall slower before he made the Dementors leave. Did you see, Draco? Draco shook his head, with that numbness creeping through his whole chilled body, thinking bleakly of how very differently he had always imagined it would feel to finally beat Harry Potter. Don't worry, he should be fine. They're taking him to the hospital wing now. There's Ron calling. I should go. Draco didn't even realise he'd fallen into step beside her until she stopped walking, the face behind her net of gnarled wet hair going pinched and grave. Draco, you aren't coming, are you? Potter, you're going to see Potter, Draco said slowly, his brain struggling to catch up with his body with this buzzing at his fingertips and toes. Hermione touched both of his shoulders then, with a look on her face like she didn't think he would like what she was about to say. Oh, Draco, look, the entire Gryffindor team is going with him and Ron, she said mean meaningfully, and heaved a sigh when he didn't seem to catch her drift. Draco, I don't think they'd want you there, I'm sorry. If it were just up to me and Ron, but Draco... Oh, Draco said dully, it's... It's okay, I'll just... And heard her calling his name, and then Frankenstein too, as he sprinted away from her as fast as he could with his robes weighed down heavy as a curse on him with the drying rain. Severus did not seem surprised to find a wet, miserable Draco Malfoy sitting on the floor outside his chambers, arms wrapped around himself and shivering. Why didn't you just let yourself in, you foolish boy? Severus sighed and opened the door and led Draco inside. Why aren't you with your housemates accepting their congratulations? Draco just stared up at him, and with a groan Severus hustled Draco towards the bathroom. There, he set spells to draw a hot bath for him very quickly, and instructed him in no uncertain terms to bathe and get warm once Severus left him alone. Draco did, though his leaden, half-numb limbs moved more slowly for him than Severus might perhaps have liked. Before long, he was toweling himself off and putting on the dry clothes Severus had left for him. His own, to judge by the coarse, shapeless black fabric, and big on Draco, though by thirteen and change they were not very big on this body any more. Draco put his wand along with his discarded rose clip in the pockets, a part of him ruefully surprised it did not burn a hole in the robes. He padded his way out to Severus, who scoffed at him not putting on the socks he'd left him. A drying charm on Draco's wrinkled feet, black socks forced on, a thick black blanket wrapped around all of Draco, and a steaming mug of valerian tea pressed into his hands, 
and Draco found himself cocooned in one of Severus's armchairs, ordered and dragged about in a daze where he only half knew what he was doing, but at least approached something like warmth again. I have contacted Madame Pomfrey with the flu, Severus told him, and Potter will be just fine. He has awoken not much the worse, even from the Dementors, so you need not castigate yourself with guilt. If this is the root of this miserable silence you maintain. Draco just stared over the mug of tea at him, pressing his face close to inhale its warmth without feeling the right to actually drink it. I spoke with Madame Hooch, the headmaster, and the team captains at length before I came back to my chambers to find a lump on my doorstep. Severus went on dryly. The result will stand nigh 190 to 80 in favour of Slytherin, but I fear this news might distress rather than cheer you. Am I about to hear some appallingly Gryffindorish sentiments from my own godson about having preferred to beat Potter the right way, or honestly? Save my stomach and abstain, Draco. The points are the points and speak for themselves. Victory is victory, however you attain it. Draco closed his eyes, letting his lower lip rest against the rim of the cup and said nothing. So you need fear nothing on a sporting or personal front, vain boy. If your pet Gryffindors turn on you for your victory... They are even more foolish and cruel than I would have predicted. It is not as if you yourself have proved immune to Dementors and their effect. Given the panic attack you suffered on the train before their very eyes, and yet you managed to catch the snitch, it is not your fault that you are tougher, and if they hold that against you. You know most every potion that exists, don't you? Draco interrupted, and Severus did not snap at the interruption, just gave a burdened sigh. I would not say so, Draco, but certainly I have a more encyclopedic knowledge than most of the many potions that have been invented over the centuries. What I would have is a good idea of the possibilities of potion craft, of the potentialities of its magic to affect the world. If it is to go back in time you want, I regret to inform you that potions have no sway over such things. You know about love potions, of course, Draco said dully. You teach them. Amortentia and the like, weaker ones too. 
he rubbed his eyes, trying to gather his thoughts to ask what he needed, and not caring what conjectures that led Severus to make. Is there an opposite to Amortentia? Like an unlove potion? Some potion that instead of adding romantic feelings from the person who takes it, removes them. Draco blinked to clear his unsteady gaze and looked Severus in the eye pleadingly. I'm not talking about a potion to cause hate or anything like that. I'm talking about something to just make you stop being in love with someone. Severus shook his head, a bitterness twisting through his whole expression that showed the thought was not entirely new to him. Or... A spell? Is there a spell like that? To just take what feelings you have for someone and cut them out? Just excise them entirely, like they hadn't been there? Not your behaviour, whether you act on them, but just a way to get someone out of your head for good. I mean, other than obliviation, and I don't even know if that would truly alter sentiment. Draco, Severus said, with so much gentleness it made him feel worse than rage would have. Draco, you know a love potion is a misnomer, don't you? I know, Draco said suddenly. Love is something beyond the power of magic to affect. Even Amortentia doesn't create real love, but obsession. So then it wouldn't make any more sense for magic to be able to take love away either. That would be very dark magic, even if it wasn't impossible. But there isn't even a potion to take away obsession. Would an antidote to an existing love potion work, even if the obsession hadn't been engendered by magical means? Draco, Severus said, and took the edges of the blanket to wrap it more securely around his godson's trembling form. Listen to me. I have researched this topic as it happens, and if you trust in my expertise in potions and in dark magic, I can assure you, without any doubt, that there is no way to willfully stop yourself from caring about someone, magical or otherwise even if they do happen to be a Gryffindor, this object of one's affection, he added, lip twisting, which you would expect, whichever cruel gods govern the laws of magic, to have them admit to be awful enough to permit an exception to their rules on such grounds. It's not a Gryffindor. Draco blurted before Severus's non-reaction made him wilt lower. Severus cast another warming charm on him. It's not me I'm even talking about. I don't have feelings or anything like that for anyone. It was a theoretical question I'm asking, because, um, love potions are in the purview of the Department of Mysteries. There's supposedly a fountain of Amortentra there, and I'm going to be an unspeakable. I mean... Not that there would be anything wrong if I did have, um, some puerile crush on someone. 
Now that I'm thirteen and into puberty, it's developmentally normal age to begin romantic attachments. He was startled into a laugh at the baffled, disgusted look that put on Severus's face. Well, that's what Hermione says. But I'm not. I wasn't asking for myself. It's, it was just a stupid question. It was, Severus agreed. A stupid question. With the dismay on his face of such a distressed kind, it left Draco with little doubt his godfather had seen through him. I don't want to. Draco choked out, looking away from the gaze he wanted more than any other persons in the world to look at him and see something worthwhile. It's not. It's not like I tried to feel like this about... It's why I was asking, because I don't want to. He had never wanted to care about Potter the way he had. But it was worse than in the blue, because he knew Potter now. And the sight of him, fallen into a pit of dementors, had been... I know how much you hate him, and I hate him too, believe me. You'll never understand how much I hate him, but I can't help it. I still... Severus heaved a sigh that seemed to last minutes. But there was no mockery in that bleak gaze, no judgment, only the same resigned hopelessness Draco could feel in himself, like the condemned prisoner finally locking eyes with his executioner and accepting there would be no malice in the axe. There are some things, Severus said finally, beyond the power of magic beyond the power of explanation or our own wills to prevent or even change. Do not be ashamed, Draco, to find yourself unable to control the contents of your own heart. But do not let that delude you either into believing that just because someone holds your heart that makes them worthy of it. Severus paused, and then the last pretense dropped between them. What do you even see in the Potter boy? I don't know, Draco muttered miserably. He has very green eyes. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Draco Malfoy and the House of Black, part three of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridges.